A decade ago, a Microsoft developer might have been defined by the fact that they built C-sharp applications on Windows. Today, a Microsoft developer is just as likely to be writing JavaScript for Linux. The company has repositioned itself to focus on cloud services, SaaS products, and enterprise artificial intelligence. Jason Young and Carl Schweitzer host The MS Dev Show, a popular podcast about Microsoft developers and technologies. On their show, Carl and Jason explore the rapidly expanding marketplace of services on Microsoft Azure, and they talk to experts about how these services are built and what they're used for. I attended the Microsoft Build conference this year and enjoyed talking to Jason and Carl there as well as afterwards. And also at the expo and the Microsoft Build conference, I was just amazed by the new technologies that the company is building and how successfully they have pivoted to cloud services. It's quite fascinating to watch the rise of the cloud as such a competitive and open market for several giant corporations that have overlapping but also some disjoint concerns and disjoint customers. So it's a market that I really enjoy watching, and one way that I get information about it is through the MS Dev Show. So I enjoyed talking to Jason and Carl on today's episode, and I hope you enjoy it too. Jason Young and Carl Schweitzer are the hosts of the MS Dev Show. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, nice to be here. Yes. So I made a resolution recently to do more shows about Microsoft and Microsoft technologies because I don't deal with them on a regular basis. I never programmed in C Sharp. I uh, just haven't interacted with that ecosystem very much. So I come at it very much from a kind of a outside observer perspective. What does it mean to be a Microsoft developer today? Well, the world is definitely different. I mean, you mentioned C-sharp, but you don't have to do C-sharp at all to be a Microsoft developer. The world is a, is a totally different place now. I mean, if you look at, you know, VS Code and, and how popular that, that's become, you know, that's that's been causing a lot of people to take another look at Microsoft technologies. Hey, maybe Microsoft isn't so evil after all. And then, you know, things like TypeScript as well. And then if you do look at something like C-sharp, you know, that world is changing as well with .NET Core and some of the, the great work there and being able to kind of get the, the best of both worlds, being able to get a super mature language that has a, a ton of features, you know, running on a super reliable platform where you can get great support and you can run it across all different operating systems. So, I mean, I think any previous assumptions that, you know, any of your listeners would have, I would, I would ask that you kind of throw those away and, and kind of take another look. That's, that's kind of the short version. Well, and also look at some of the, like the newest popular kind of desktop applications out there. I mean, you mentioned VS code, but there's also like Slack. Those are technologies that are written in Electron. Those are JavaScript applications that are, are written in this Chromium shell that you can also use the, the desktop app converter to package those in an AppX and deliver via the store. So you don't have to use all of the traditional models that Microsoft has had in the past. They're really open and really kind of accept whatever you want to do. Exactly. So the Microsoft company culture has certainly changed over the last decade or two. How has that change propagated through the community of people who develop for Microsoft technologies? 
Yeah, I think, you know, Carl and I are going to have a little bit different perspective here. Me being a Microsoft employee, him him being, you know, working for, you know, a company that, that does a lot with, with Microsoft technologies. I mean, internal in the company, there's just been a, a dramatic shift, you know, not just with the technology I talked about before, but, you know, things like Linux, you know, there's a substantial you know, base of, of Linux virtual machines running on top of Azure. If you look at even Windows 10 now, like Linux is integrated with that. You know, we're really embracing all of these these other technologies and and it's really causing people to, you know, the developers in the community to sort of rethink their their assumptions. And I, I think there there is a, a group of people out there that are, you know, they want to stay within the Microsoft ecosystem. But what's great now is I think kind of the non-Microsoft ecosystem is sort of part of the Microsoft ecosystem now, if that makes sense. You can start to use these other technologies and you don't have to necessarily wait for Microsoft to innovate in a particular area. You can start using, you know, these third-party, you know, database products on on top of Linux, for example, and run all of that on on Azure. So for me, that's been, you know, that's been the the biggest thing is just opening up that that world of, of possibilities and and also Microsoft culture changing in a way that's making those things work well together. You know, instead of, you know, trying to to rebuild something that that already existed, only doing that where that makes sense. And and first, you know, the default being, hey, this this product is popular in the marketplace. How can we how can we just use that and and extend that or work with that, integrate with that, that type of thing. Carl? Yeah, looking at it from kind of the outside looking in, there's different pockets of Microsoft have different levels of interactivity. There's some that, you know, put out their code on GitHub where you can check it out, even even submit pull requests and take it in. But what I think is even more valuable is a lot of the discussions that are happening, like you can go to the .NET team on GitHub and look at their discussions and planning for the next version of like C Sharp or the .NET framework and have input. You can say, hey, you know, I need this problem solved or, you know, you guys are looking at this. I, I don't think that's a problem or I think you're looking at it the wrong way. And you can have a lot of impact on the future of Microsoft products as somebody who's not directly associated with Microsoft. So I think that, you know, part of the the openness is taken root in Microsoft in different ways, whether it's directly open sourcing things or, or just being a little bit more open to the community. You know, I think mm. different teams are dipping their toes into it in different ways. I also look at user voice. Microsoft has really adopted user voice to gauge feedback. So mm. if there's something that, you know, a product that you really want to give feedback on, that's another great way to get your voice heard. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting, like if you look at what my what I'm working on today, like literally this day, it is Docker integrating with IoT Edge. Our IoT Edge platform is open source and it runs, you know, a number of different languages. So you can run Node.js. In this case, the partner I'm working with, they want to do .NET Core work because they already have a, a .NET Core code base. So we're running .NET Core in a Docker container that will get deployed, you know, and .NET Core itself is open source, and it will get deployed to an open source framework that runs, you know, on the edge to enable these these IoT devices. So you get the you get the strength of all that open source technology and the ability to even, you know, like Carl said, submit feedback and also submit pull requests. But you also get the the power of the the Azure cloud, and you get the the power of you know things like 
identity at scale from Microsoft. So I don't know, it's just super exciting for me to be able to just use the technologies that I think are the best. And sometimes those are the, those are the, you know, our Microsoft products, sometimes they're not. And, and guess what? I'm going to use, I'm going to use the thing that works the best to, to solve the problem at hand, just like everybody else. Yeah. So I saw you guys at build and build was exciting. There was so much interesting stuff released and, you know, the, the Microsoft Azure cloud offerings are, are pretty interesting. It does make me wonder sometimes, like, what is Microsoft best at today? What is their core competency? From my point of view, I think they're still best at what they've always been best at, building a platform. If we look, you know, historically, you know, that started off with Windows and that was really dominant for many years. But I, I think it's really been transformative seeing Microsoft flip their core competencies to be cloud-based. And when you look at how Amazon started their cloud, they really, you know, they initially just took their extra infrastructure that they had and put it out there for sale or for rent or whatever. And that kind of started the the cloud phenomenon. And when you look at Azure's approach, they kind of took the other ways. They like, how can we make this cloud a platform? So I, I, by the way, I think that story about Amazon, that's actually not accurate. Well, you know, either way, even if it's not accurate, that is their core competency from the beginning has been a very IaaS heavy approach. Yeah, so even if the even, even if the story's wrong, the core concept is is still good. You know, they, they have a very strong IaaS story, but as you start going into the platform bits, that's where it gets a little bit weaker. And Microsoft started with the platform being stronger and they're continuing to grow that as well as having a good now infrastructure approach. So I think that Azure's cloud is a lot more interesting than Amazon's cloud, even if it you know is in second place right now by usage. And, you know, Microsoft has thousands of developers that are really good at creating tooling, creating developer experiences. And I think, you know, leveraging what they're good at as making Azure just really exciting place to be right now. Yeah, I think I think that really hits on it, right? Developer experience. Like ev- pretty much everything you said really boils down to developer experience. So, you know, there's the there's the tooling and there's the the mindset and and all of those things. But then there's, you know, the 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 global distribution. I mean, I I don't I don't want to sound like I'm marketing, you know, talking about like the number of regions and things like that. So, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but again, developer experience, like developing you know, paths services on top of Azure that make it so that it's as easy as possible to, to, to deploy your code. You know, so if you look across the, the services, that's, that's always what it's about. I, I have a problem that I want to solve and how do I do that? And, you know, you saw that initially with some, some basic platform services. And now over time you see more focus on like particular verticals. If you look at the IOT strategy, you'll see that around, some very specific scenarios, but you know, while the the underlying generic platform still exists, but in any case, again, it's how can I allow you know allow the developer to be super flexible, but at the same time, you know, provide them with some tools that are that are really going to accelerate their development. And then the other thing, I mean, if we're talking about Azure specifically, is that you know there are there are only a handful of companies on the planet that can afford the the type of scale that you know AWS, Microsoft, Google can achieve and and the thing is like you have to spend i don't know i don't even know the exact numbers you have to spend 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollars to to build a cloud at this type of scale and you have to start at least 5 years ago i mean there's mm-hmm. there's just no other way around it so i mean those are those are some of the skills there 
you know, so again, I think everything boils down to developer experience and not everything is perfect and, and stuff comes up over time. But, you know, as far as especially on the on the enterprise side, you know, starting with that audience and understanding how that audience works and then starting to spread that out and, and focus on, on other verticals and, and other types of developers. That's really where I see the strengths lying. What were the platform as a service products that Azure started with? What they started with? Well, I mean, so if you look at like the super early days, I mean, the easiest thing was was deploying .NET code, and those were those were super early days, and and things were were pretty difficult there. But if you look if you look at things like web apps, you know, for for running your code, even today, if you want to deploy a web application, you can do it for just a few bucks a month. And being able to deploy your Node.js, your Java application, your .NET application, Python, those types of things. So you can deploy that super easy. You can actually put that code into GitHub. You know, Azure will go pick up that source code. It will build it. It will deploy it automatically for you. You know, so that's that's kind of the the core there. I mean, earlier than that, there were, you know, and they still exist. There's web and worker roles. Now there's Azure Functions, which, you know, is really, it's would be similar to something like AWS Lambda. And obviously, you know, AWS came out with that one first. And then if you want to know kind of where Azure has innovated first, I would say on the on the Azure IoT side, you know, if you look at the the maturity of the, you know, if you look at like the Gartner Magic Quadrant, like the completeness of vision, you know, I think Azure is is quite a bit ahead there on the IoT side. Not to say you couldn't do the same things on, on AWS, but I think I think there's a pretty good advantage on that side. What are the advantages? Like what are the specific technological like gaps that AWS has that that Azure has patched up on the IoT side. That's a really good question. I know like if you look at where we were, so you know, I I kind of jump in and I don't look at AWS on a daily basis. So it's really hard for me to do like a specific competitive analysis on the spot. But if you look at, you know, what I can tell you is at build not this year but last year, so you know, we're talking a little over a year ago. You know, I helped run some of the the IoT labs and the the experience I thought was phenomenal. So what we had set up was at each station we had a Raspberry Pi 3 device and then we had a laptop there that had Visual Studio installed. And it was basically an hour long session where you would you would set up an IoT solution. And what you would do is you'd create a new application, you'd add a few references in for the the client device libraries. And then with basically one line of code to, you know, send in the connection string, you would provision, you'd provision a device and set the connection string. And that connection string was specific for that device for security reasons. But then what you would do is, you know, write that code in Visual Studio and then you could actually hit run, you know, execute. And Visual Studio would actually connect to the Raspberry Pi 3. It would deploy the code for you. You could actually step through the code and, you know, view like the real-time variables and, and that type of thing. But being able to do two-way communication with a device with basically one line of code for each operation, you know, one line of setup, one line of code to, you know, send telemetry data from the device, one line of code to receive data from the other side, you know, just the, again, just, it always comes back to developer experience. That experience was super clean. And you could take somebody who, you know, maybe not, wasn't even a .NET person, who didn't really fully understand IoT solutions, you could have them look at that code and, and fully understand that. And then, you know, we've just been building on that experience past then. And again, I'm I'm not specifically on the IoT team, but, you know, they've added a lot of great device twin functionality. And, you know, there's a lot of, 
you know, enterprise user feedback that is that has gone into that. And it's it's really been moving fast and maturing fast. And it's been great to see the progress there. We moved from a place, you know, in the past, I think like 20 years ago or, or 10 or even 15 years ago. I'm not sure where you want to look at the timeline, but we've gone from a place where IT was more of a zero-sum game to a place where it's a much more positive-sum game, and there are lots of different players. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution for most of the, you know, most of the the problems that you would want to solve. Do you think Microsoft has been able to adjust to that new world properly, where it's it's not zero-sum and you don't have to be like focused on the competition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, I guess that's a lot of what we've been talking about, right? Is, is having all of these things work well together. You know, people, people will come to me and say, you know, I I wish you guys could do this. And it, and it comes down to like, Hey, we would have to have a monopoly to do that. And, And I think it's nice having multiple players in the space, right. To, to kind of keep everybody honest and, and to watch that innovation come up from a from a couple different places, and that's the world that we're that we're living in now. It's not Microsoft dictating terms to the world. It's it's the developer community. It's the users that are that are really making the demands and have been empowered. You know, hey, we want this stuff to be easier, and then you have all these companies competing over that, and you just see it working out better for for everybody. I think the battle right now is in machine learning as an example. You know, Microsoft is investing and and actually there was a, you know, significant, you know, reorg focused around, you know, artificial intelligence and Hmm. and machine learning. And really that's just kind of a result of of the things that we've been doing anyway. I mean, obviously Google's a big player there as well, but like that battle is really heating up, you know, because we have a lot of industrial partners that are, you know, they're they're already able to collect a lot of this data. It's really a matter of getting the data to the right place, throwing a whole bunch of compute power at it, and then coming up with insights. So being able to figure out when equipment will fail, being able to figure out, you know, there was there was one recently, you know, figuring out from the sounds of, of something in a pipe, you know, like where the weak spots are in the pipe. I mean, mm. there's situation after situation where you can use this exist, existing data and use machining learning against it. And there are so many opportunities right now that I don't even think, you know, if you look at Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and, and you know, even if you bunch in a whole bunch of other companies there, like there's no way to even keep up on the opportunities. There are far more opportunities than any company can even execute on. So I think everybody is, everybody's winning in this right now, I think. And there is, you know, there are some mindshare things going on, but it's really as fast as we can come up with functionality and as fast as as we can throw cores at a problem and throw smart people at a problem, we're able to really improve the world, improve, you know, organizations' ability to execute and be efficient. Well, you know, when you asked your original question, you know, I was thinking back, you know, you know, what really has changed a lot in the last like six years? And for me, especially when you talk about like IT is the blurring of the line of what IT and developers are with the concept of DevOps. And Microsoft has really kind of stepped up pretty quickly in providing a lot of the tools that people in those kinds of roles need in their VSTS or VS Online products that they have. You know, six years ago, we had VSTS on-premises and that was it. And it was essentially your source control and your tasks and that's it. But now that it's really been evolved, not only into an online service, but one that fits that 
the IT minded role as well. It's not just a tool that developers use to get their jobs done. It's something that the entire team uses to coordinate, work together, not just build the code, but to coordinate its release and manage it in production as well. So I look at that, that like there are specific things. I mean, Jason was talking about a few other things, but I think there's some very specific things. You look at some of those, those trends in the, at the time and Microsoft not only has kind of foresaw other tech trends and met them, but they also saw tech trends that they necessarily weren't pioneering themselves, like like the DevOps one, and really came in early with a good set of tools to fulfill these evolving and new roles. Yeah, that, that's such a good point. If you look at, it's, so Donovan Brown from Microsoft, he has this great presentation. He, he goes on stage and he wants to show off the DevOps pipeline. And he goes, he actually surveys the audience and says, you guys pick the language and you pick where you want me to deploy it to. You know, so they'll pick like, I want to deploy a Ruby application to AWS. And then he will on stage build out that DevOps pipeline. And I think, I mean, this is an awesome demo, first of all. But second of all, I mean, it just shows like, you know, it's, it's not some guy with PowerPoint slides saying, I'm going to deploy, you know, C sharp to Azure and show you how easy it is. It's, it's much more impactful than that. Yeah. So like studying this cultural shift of Microsoft has been really interesting to me. And, you know, I was focused a lot on it actually last summer. I was reading several books about Microsoft and the antitrust case that happened in the nineties and and then in the meantime, yeah, I, I was actually living in Bellevue at the time, so I was thinking a lot about Microsoft. And you know, you you walk around Bellevue, and it just feels like Microsoft town, basically. And you talk to people about Microsoft all the time, and it was it was just very interesting to to kind of study it while living in Microsoft town. And you know, one of the things that I walked away from, I actually did a show with a lawyer who had written a book about the case against Microsoft back in the '90s. And I, I walked away from an interview with him kind of feeling like maybe the antitrust case was a little unfounded. Have you guys looked into it in detail? Like, what are your feelings about the antitrust case? Do you think it was overblown, like, in, yeah, in so retrospect? My, yeah, so my only comment on it, I I first of all, I think that was a completely different company. I don't, I mean, it's just, a, it was a completely different company. Like, I don't. I don't even really think that I work at the same company that that was back then. And I would say that it's completely different people and a completely different culture. That being said, you know, uh, me as a consumer, and I'm sort of speaking like not as a Microsoft employee now, what, what frustrates me is, you know, I, I use all different types of devices. Like I use an iPhone. I have an Apple Watch. I have AirPods. You know, I, like I use everything. I use Mac OS as much as I, well, I would say less than I use Windows these days, but I try to use everything. If if somebody tells me a piece of technology is cool, like I'm going to try it. I'm a technologist before I'm a Microsoft employee. So it's really frustrating for me, you know, using something like an iPhone where, you know, you click on something and it wants to open a browser and guess what? It has to be Safari. Like you, you don't get a choice. And the same thing happens with like almost all of their built-in applications. Like they, they hold such tight control over it and they really dictate to the user, like you will use your phone in this way. And I try to use Chrome and, you know, it works on there. But then again, when I, when I click on a link or something, 
from a different application, guess what? You're you're going to Safari. There's no choice. If you want to click on an address in your in your calendar, it's going to go to you know Apple Maps, for example. Yep. You know they they get favorable treatment on on everything. I mean, I use Waze all the time, but guess what? When my phone is locked, I don't see the the navigation. But if you use Apple Maps, everything becomes magical and and it works totally different. So so from that perspective, like I find that really infuriating and. And it is because I, I look back at like the, the you know, what happened to, to Microsoft and, you know, I don't know if it was fair or not. I can't be the judge of that, but I will say like just knowing that that happened and, and that Microsoft was penalized for it. It is frustrating now seeing other companies exhibit the same behaviors that Microsoft was punished for and nothing happens. So, again, as I'm, I'm saying that as a consumer, that's just my personal frustration. Yeah. And whether it was founded or not, I, I think one of the key things is you have people that kind of live through that time frame. There's a, a large amount of them that just have an opinion that I didn't pay attention to it, but Microsoft went through a lot of flack for what they did. So they must be evil. And exactly. they've just, they've never updated their perspective. Exactly. Whereas if, if you look at like immediately after all the consequences were handed out, whatever the, the fines and legal things were, Microsoft went out of its way to not be that company for quite a few years. You know, even under the same Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer administrations, they, they did their darndest to not repeat those mistakes. But what's happened since, you know, so not only did they kind of reverse course on whatever it was. But when we had that, you know, starting towards the end of Steve Ballmer's period, he started transitioning the company and such as really championed this, you know, like we talked about earlier, this openness, this accepting of all of these different technologies. So whether or not it was fair that what happened then, it does have a lot of impact on how people think of Microsoft. But a lot of those people, what they really need to do is they need to open up their eyes and their ears and say, hey, Microsoft is doing something different. Let me see what they're doing. Then make a new opinion. Yeah, because Microsoft, I feel like they're the ones that are the most open, the ones that I think are are playing the most fairly. And I'm sure you could find, you know, an example or two where you're like, oh, well, no, you know what they're doing over here. I'm not really a fan of it. But I mean, overall, like it's, you know, it is really like, you know, focusing on both privacy, on, you know, consumer trust and then also focusing on being open and being honest and and even things like roadmaps and showing those. So, yeah, I mean, I just I really like where kind of where we're sitting right now as far as positioning. And I yeah, I wish people would take just take a second look. And, and if you want to form the same opinion, then then, you know, so be it. But just do yourself a favor and take that second look. And different teams are at different stages of their transition right. as well. You look at like the web and cloud teams, they're very far along in how they interact with the public and are open. I mean, you look at like the the web community calls. I, as an MVP, we get access to, you know, inside information, but they put some of the MVP calls out on Google Hangouts. For everybody to hear, not just the MVPs. So I, th I think that's really huge when, you know, the public can have that much access to information. Whereas there's other teams like the Windows team, they come from a lot more, you know, historically, you know, we, we wrote this software for three years and here's the next update. And they're making the transition on their cadence and they're still changing on, on how they communicate. So that's something that they're still in the progress of changing and evaluating and see what works for them. Yeah, well, it was so bizarre. I, I, Jason, you know, you you made the point about people who have not updated their views mm -hmm. about Microsoft since getting convinced that 
it, this is an evil company. I remember I was in college and I had multiple professors say, "Oh, this is the evil empire. Yep. You know, this is a terrible evil company." And like I just kind of assumed, "Okay, sure, they're my professors. They teach computer science. They must know what they're talking about." And then studying it in more detail, what you find is, "Okay, this company was just ahead of everybody. They were so far ahead of everybody that they dominated the cutting edge and yeah, they set some defaults and you could frame their default setting as being anti-competitive, as being inconvenient for the consumer in favor of Microsoft's business if you take an extremely short-term view or if you're Netscape and you're biased towards taking that view. But you could also make longer-term arguments that those browser defaults were, oh, like the same arguments that Apple is making today, like as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I think it was just it was short sighted. Like the the decisions that the legal decisions that were made were short sighted and they were based on kind of perception of Bill Gates, perception of this company that was dominant, but they they were not they didn't take into consideration the fact that there were alternate paths that you could take. You could different companies could be built. You could build build an operating system from scratch like Linux did and, and you know, there was the idea that, oh, you know, that is not necessarily a threat to Microsoft because Microsoft has their networking stack locked down and Linux computers aren't going to be able to interface with them. And who knows what would have happened if, if there wouldn't have been legal pressure. Maybe Microsoft would have been doing stuff that was more convincingly antitrust. But I don't know. It's just so weird, you know, w- when you analyze it in more detail and you see, okay, you know, was this company really doing something that was inconvenient for consumers? And just the fact that they got their name dragged through the mud has had such a <laughs> such a bad bad outcome for them and i think you know companies like uber or sorry companies like google are learning from this in terms of optics i think that's why google's like google's perception they have tried so hard to keep a clean perception yeah and failed in many regards right i mean they're known as the company that's selling your privacy and I think that the other thing that makes that really hard too, when you talk about optics is, you know, all of us, we live in the US and we have a certain way of looking at things. But when you start moving to the EU, they have different values. They Different things are core to their being. So what we may think of as maybe, you know, a very small issue, that could be a very important thing to those kind of people. And moving out through the world, there's, you know, many more different kinds of cultures so it's not just navigating that in, in one area. These are global companies. They have to tiptoe and maintain their, their branding and goodwill everywhere. And that is a very hard thing to do as well. So you guys work with a lot of enterprises. I mean, I think this is why Azure is the second most popular cloud is that a lot of companies feel feel comfortable with Microsoft technologies and Microsoft already has its sales clause into the companies who bought enterprise windows licenses so it becomes easier to to kind of transition them to azure what's the process that you're seeing enterprises taking as they move to the cloud well and actually i'm going to disagree with your your statement there so we we do have it's interesting way of saying it we you know we have our sales clause in there but here's the thing here and here's here's the thing that that we're that we're learning over time you can't go to companies and say hey you should buy some azure you know, you should, this is the thing you need to solve your problems. So you should buy a whole bunch of it and, and use that Azure thing. That doesn't work. You can't, you can't sell the cloud like that. You used to be able to sell, you know, box products like that. You could sell 
Office, and you still can. I mean, there's a cloud-based model for 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 Office, but for those products, you go in there and you say, "Hey, you know, how many users do you have? You know, what kind of term do you want? Those types of things." And that was that was really the the old model for Azure. And this is why my team exists. <laughs> for Azure, things are different. What we found is the the best way to get people to adopt Azure and and really understand those things is to develop alongside the developers at those enterprises. And it's really like a completely different model than than what we used to have. So again, you know, I mentioned today, you know, doing this Docker work, and I I won't list all the technologies again. But this is for a hackfest that I'm that I'm doing with a partner next week. You know, they have a set of problems that they're trying to solve. We're not really even thinking about Azure at this point. We're just we're trying to figure out how to solve their problems. So they're coming up to Redmond. We're going to throw a bunch of smart people at it from our side. They're sending up a whole bunch of smart people. We're going to figure out what tools we can use to solve this problem. And I suspect, you know, and I should say, we we already know that, you know, ultimately the, the purpose that we're collecting this data for is to gain insights out of it, you know, through machine learning and through, you know, business intelligence tools. And that will make, you know, their customers more efficient. But, you know, again, I, I just kind of want to reiterate the the way that we're doing that is working side by side with their developers, figuring out the best tools to, to use. And, you know, that's how you get people to use Azure. They It makes them want to use it instead of a salesperson, you know, saying, hey, you need to buy some of this to, to solve your problems. And that works really well with especially the PaaS offerings that are in Azure. I mean, you you have to get in there and get in there in the trenches with it. When you look at the IaaS, you can kind of take a little bit more of that box model approach too, because you can look and like, okay, you have so much server capacity and you're running the following applications. If you virtualize that and just kind of shifted the cloud, you'll save X. So therefore, blah, blah, blah. So you, you can sell differently depending upon which product it is, but when you look at kind of the early cloud, what sold a lot was those kind of IaaS, the VMs. But as we see people understanding the cloud more and understanding the different capability sets that it has, they're realizing that PaaS is where they want to be. So it's, it's understanding, you know, how do you develop for it? What are what are the best patterns and practices to using your apps to make them work better in the cloud? Yeah, that's such a good point. When you talk about PaaS, what kind of services are you talking about? Because you guys were when you guys were illustrating the differences between AWS and Azure, it sounds like you, you have an opinion that Azure is more focused on the PaaS. So what are what exactly are those PaaS offerings that you're talking about? Yeah, I can give a really simple example of that. So I think one of one of the best examples would be look at SQL Server. Okay. So, you know, I work with really large global enterprise partners. And to, you know, what Carl said was step one is that they they take their application as is and they just run it in a VM in Azure. And I think that's really boring. And, and this whole thing of like, you know, you can save money by doing this, you know, in a lot of cases, that's not even true. Like, I, I think if you're just if you're trying to move all your stuff as is and trying to save money, you're probably going to have a bad time. The the effort you put into it versus any potential savings you have is, is going to be minimal. But in that case, they what they would end up doing is. You know, they'd run their their software in the in the virtual machines and then potentially they'd also run, you know, traditional boxed SQL server in a virtual machine, which is perfectly fine. We have a lot of guidance for, for how to do that. But the pattern that I see with a lot of partners I work with is really the next phase is really the reason that we're all doing this. So instead of using SQL server installed in a VM, you use SQL Azure, the PaaS service. 
So you go out there, you say, give me a database and boom, SQL Azure within seconds will we'll provision you a database. You can put your data in there. You get the exact same interface to it. You know, you connect to it exactly the same way. Obviously it's a different connection string. And if you need to scale that up or down, you just, you know, request more resources. You can scale it up or down as it's running. And then we'll do things like, you know, replicate that data to other data centers. You know, we'll, we'll automate the backups for you. We'll do, we'll do all of those cool things. And then there's also, you know, a, a pattern that I see in regards to the databases like that, where, you know, traditionally this software might be sold to, you know, a hundred different customers and basically they install it on-prem and they each get their own SQL, SQL server instance, you know, locally. And that's just what they're used to doing. Whereas now when we, we re-architect this, we make the application multi-tenant and each, we can still give each customer their own SQL database, but we're basically putting it into an elastic pool so that, you know, the, the partner can, can basically pay for the amount of overall capacity that they need. And then it kind of get, you know, gets divvied up between each person. And then if there's some spikes or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It all just evens out in the end. The end result is that you have an application that is far more reliable it's far quicker to deploy because, you know, you're probably going to have some kind of you know, DevOps pipeline where, you know, you're making changes and you're getting those into production quicker and you're using feature flags and that type of thing. But then you're also, you know, just adding redundancy. You know, you're, you have multiple services that are, you know, geo redundant. So the, the reliability of your application goes up plus the accessibility goes up. I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole list of advantages to, to, to going that route. And, and that's, that's what I'm doing with most of my time during the day. So at the end, when you're looking at PaaS, you're only caring about the services that you're caring about. So in this case, you know, when Jason's talking about SQL, you're only caring about the database. You're only caring about the, the schema, the table structure and so on and so forth. You no longer have to think about, all right, now I need, I need a server to run it on. That needs an operating system. I need to install SQL Server itself. That needs a license. I have to talk about EA agreements. You don't have to manage any of that anymore when you start using the PaaS offerings. And Jeff, were you aware that SQL Server now also runs on Linux? Yeah, I mean, I knew that. And, and yeah. I also knew about like the, the PaaS SQL offering. Okay. But I mean, so Google has cloud SQL, Amazon has Amazon Aurora. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has their PaaS offering. And and like, I think that's fine. I think it's great. It doesn't really seem like a differentiator. Like, it seems like we're basically in a place today where we've got almost like feature parity among the clouds. And it seems like they're fairly interchangeable at that point. I, I think if you look at like component by component, like if you're just looking at SQL or something like that, or if you're just looking at the web hosting that might be available or just like an event, event hub or service bus, you know, pieces, you could be like, you know, these are all kind of equivalent. It's who's a penny cheaper here or there. But I think where it gets really interesting in Azure is how easy it is to combine all of these into a full scale solution. So in a lot of cases, you know, you mentioned Google, but Google doesn't quite doesn't have everything that Amazon and Azure have. But AWS and Azure are a little bit more compatible or, or feature equivalent. But when it comes to just kind of tying those pieces together, it's been my experience that it's so much quicker to do that with Azure. Either they put it directly in the portal where you just have to kind of connect things there or even with the Visual Studio IDE. 
it's nice just being able to like do open up a new console app and then once you have your app running you can right click and publish that as a web job up in azure yeah. just by entering in the right code and that just makes yeah. it so much more convenient and then it's in with your source control with all of your other your web apps your database you know all of that can be managed via visual studio in one spot so as a developer i can use my one tool i can stay productive all day long and kind of just keep adding and adding and adding as I need it. Yeah. Could you build any application on any of these cloud platforms? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we're not going <laughs> to, Carl and I aren't going to sit here and lie and say, you know, Azure has, you know, feature X and, and feature X is the, is the thing that nobody else can create. And that's the whole reason you want to be on Azure. You know, that's, that's just not, not the case. You know, there, you know, like Carl mentioned, there are equivalent services for the most part between all of them. And if there are missing on, you know, one cloud provider, guess what? It's probably on the roadmap and it's, it's probably going to show up at, at some point. So again, I think it comes back to, for me, it comes back to, you know, developer experience and the, and the ease of, of deploying those things. And then there are, you know, certain feature combinations that, that do work together really well. I mean, if you look at some of the announcements from build, if you are running, you know, .NET, and you're running it in Azure and you're running it in Azure website, which is really an easy path forward. You know, like I mentioned, you can just throw that code in GitHub. You literally just point your website at it and boom, you're up and running with a deployment pipeline. So you're talking about Azure, like the Azure benefit is you have this well-integrated experience. Yeah, I was I was actually going to get to the big benefit there. So, so in this particular case, what you end up getting is if you're using Visual Studio, you are able to actually set a breakpoint, you know, in the cloud in production, it's not a breakpoint that will, it will actually stop at, but it'll take a snapshot. And then you can actually step through the code locally and diagnose production issues. You know, so you're in this world-class local IDE using, you know, connecting to Azure and connecting to your .NET application that were easy to deploy. I mean, you could demo the entire thing end to end in, in 15 minutes, you know, from creating your code to, you know, pushing it into GitHub, deploying it, and then being able to to actually debug in production. And I, I think there's a lot of value in that. Do you know if AWS and Google have that same capability? Do, do you know what the integration across services story is with those services? Well, I mean, you know, obviously I specialize in Azure. I don't <laughs> I don't know every every detail of that, but my understanding is, you know, like the feature I talked about in particular is like a differentiating feature at least for for the time being. I don't think Amazon has any kind of IDE out in the marketplace, for example. And if they do, I don't think they have this that comprehensive set of tools that all work together. I could be wrong and and again, I'm sure I'm sure they have some other scenarios where where it's kind of the same case where if you're using X, Y, and Z, those technologies will work together well. But if you look at, you know, especially with our enterprise customers and the the massive, you know, .NET code base out there and, you know, even like Node.js now, you look at those those code bases out there and the number of people that are you, you know, Visual Studio customers, you know, they're going to have a great experience in, in Azure and in AWS, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. So do you think that the future that users want is the highly integrated cloud experience? Because, I mean, for me as a consumer, the goal would be to have really good, easy ways to mix and match yep. between services in the cloud. Like, I'm not sure if if, no, they want it all. They want it all, right? So yeah. absolutely. If I want to 
if you want a virtual machine and you, you just want to do everything yourself and kind of, you know, stay out of my business that I want that to work great. And if you want to use that with, you know, a SQL database, that's a, a PaaS service. I also want that to work great. But at the same time, like once, you know, if I, if I do pick a, a set of technologies that, that make sense together and, and are common, you know, commonly put together, I want them to work well. I mean, there's, there's PaaS services in Azure, for example, there's streaming analytics, for example, which will read from, you know, event hubs automatically. Like you go in there and you say, I, I want to read from that. You can have it read from, from other locations. Same with like Azure functions. So maybe Azure functions is an even better example. You know, which again is kind of like AWS Lambda, if, if your listeners are familiar with that. But if you're using Azure Functions and there's there's a defined set of inputs and outputs, you can you can write your own connector to write to anything, literally anything that you could possibly dream up. But at the same time, like if I'm if I want to read from Event Hub, for example, you know, which is my my ingestion point where I'm receiving, you know, this this pipe of data, like I don't want to have to, you know, take this connection string and and, you know, use some kind of client library and blah, blah, blah. I want to have the ability to do that. And you can. But if I know that I'm using both those technologies, you know, there's there's definitely this desire to just say, you know, just wire those up for me automatically. And, and I'm happy to have the choice to do it. But please make my life a little bit easier if you can. Cool. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the MS Dev Show because mm-hmm. we are all podcasters. I know we're, we're up against time, but maybe, I mean, if, if people are curious about learning more about Microsoft technologies, definitely check out the MS Dev show. I listen to it on a semi-regular basis. Maybe real quick, what are the best and worst aspects of hosting a software podcast? I'll say worst is just like, you know, it it comes down to a non-technical thing, scheduling, getting everybody's calendars to line up and emailing everybody and getting everybody to just agree like, hey, we're going to meet here on this time. Oh yeah. And it's this time zone too. Is that daylight savings? Oh, crap. Hold on. You know, it's that thing. So that's the worst (laughs) part. The best part for us, at least for me, is something that actually doesn't happen very often. But when we go out to conferences and user groups, people know us. And that's really cool. It's We get to have a lot more conversations with a lot more people than we normally would. Before we started doing this, I would, you know, I would still go to conferences and user groups and I would go out and reach out to people and have these conversations. But now I'm finding more and more people are coming to me. So it's really cool just being able to interact with the people that listen to our show. Yeah. For me, the best thing is all of the great people that we get to talk to people. It's pretty much the exception if somebody says no or or kind of defers to somebody else to, to come on the show. But as a rule, like rule, anybody will accept and say, yes, I will come on and talk about something. So we can really go to like the authoritative experts on particular technologies and get them to, to come on the show. And, and for me, I use it as a, a learning experience. And the worst part is, is just all of the, the business overhead. And then I did want to mention, too, you know, we cover, you know, Microsoft technologies, but we also cover, you know, we, we always say that we, you know, cover anything that a Microsoft developer would be interested in. You know, so we will cover, you know, Node.js. We will cover any kind of third-party stuff. We had a we had an episode on Electron Shell for Slack. I'm just kind of looking through here right now. You know, we had one on on DevOps, Mesosphere, Docker, and containers. We had one on a balloon that uh, went up into space. You know, thing things like that. Even like career superpowers. Like we we cover a whole bunch of different things. But you know, really, our niche is 
if you are a developer that uses any Microsoft technologies, whether it's Visual Studio, whether it's Azure, whether it's Windows or, you know, even TypeScript or VS Code, any of those users, like we, we want to expand your horizons and, and teach you something new. And that may or may not be a Microsoft technology. Yeah. And you also have some different segments like the news and some other mm-hmm. stuff that you explore. So anyone who's curious about that, if you can't get enough software engineering podcasting, then check out the MS Dev Show. Well, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily, guys. It's been great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.